Good morning. This is a hearing of the Subcommittee on the Western Hemisphere, Transnational Crimes, Civilian Security, Democracy, Human Rights, and Global Women's Issues. And the purpose of this hearing is to review the resources, priorities, and programs in fiscal year 2017 budget requests from the President's uh, and, and the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Western Hemisphere Affairs and the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, as well as the USAID's Bureau for Latin America and the Caribbean. We'll have an official panel with three witnesses. Tom, Mr. Tom Malinowski, who is the Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Mr. Francisco Palmieri, who is the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs. Ms. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Hogan, who is the Acting Assistant Administrator for Latin America and the Caribbean at the U.S. Agency for International Development. And I want to thank all of you for being with us today, and we appreciate your time and commitment to furthering the important work of this committee. And I also want to thank your staff for working with the committee and members of my staff to making, to making this hearing possible. Today is an opportunity to learn more about the administration's priorities in the Western Hemisphere and in promoting democracy and human rights around the world. There are many challenges that we need to collaborate on in order to make U.S. programs maximally effective. Building strong democratic institutions and promoting human rights around the world is in the moral and strategic interest of the United States and should continue to be one of our top priorities. I believe it is important for U.S. programs to be aligned with our strategic priorities, and not just in the Western Hemisphere, but throughout the world. It's also important that U.S. taxpayer dollars are not wasted, but instead are used to address significant challenges related to our national security interests. I believe Congress can continue to work in a constructive way to enhance the Department's efforts. I hope you address these issues today in your testimonies, and uh, with that, uh, I turn it over to our ranking member, Senator Boxer. Mr. Chairman, thank you so much. I'd ask that my entire statement be placed in the record, and I will summarize. Um, this is an important hearing, and I want to extend my warm welcome to our guests and witnesses. Um, it is an opportunity to examine in more detail uh, the Department's budgetary priorities. Our subcommittee is a very important one. It has jurisdiction over a range of matters. Uh, including the countries of the Western Hemisphere, as well as global responsibility for democracy, human rights, and women's issues. While we face numerous challenges in the Western Hemisphere, ranging from narcotics trafficking to assisting countries in the wake of natural disasters, the region is making tremendous progress, and it is rife with opportunity, uh, due in large part to the support of the United States. I know my chairman and I we're friends, but we disagree strongly on Cuba, so I will just say that President Obama's decision to change a failed policy was welcome news for me, and I hope it will turn out to be so uh, for the Cuban people and the human rights activists there. Um, it's an unprecedented moment, and I hope the Cuban people make the most of it and that the government understands that they've got to change. We have also witnessed progress in Colombia. Uh, we're due in large part to the support of the U.S. Negotiations between the government and the FARC continue to move forward. Uh, and we can look at Argentina, where the United States is poised to build stronger ties. I visited Argentina a couple of years ago and was so depressed and disgusted, frankly, with what I saw in that Kirchner uh, government. And I really have hope now and I really believe, as we see the new government saying, yes, they're going to pay back the bonds and make investors at least partially whole, and maybe whole, it's an important point. In Mexico, 
We continue to build upon and reinforce our relationship with our close neighbor. Our ties are very important, um, and, I, and I am very concerned about uh, threats posed by the spread of the Zika virus, and I think we're going to be heard more and more on that on the floor of the United States Senate. This is an emergency. We, could, we shouldn't be quibbling about it. It's an emergency, and our people are going to get sick, really sick. And we already have, I know in Florida, I've heard 99 cases of the Zika, and it's going to happen as sure as we are sitting here and in short order. So we need to lead on that, and we need to lead the world. Um, and I know it's very difficult. There are no sure answers. We're going to stumble, and we're going to fall. But as they say, what's important is how do you get back up? Have you learned the lessons? Are you ready to make sure that we don't repeat those mistakes? Because in any kind of human relations, let alone foreign relations, we make mistakes. Um, so I support funding for programs that support human rights defenders and civil society organizations, those that promote religious freedom, strengthen accountability, and the rule of law. And I thank again my chairman. Thank you. Let's, uh, we'll begin with a testimony from our panelists. Uh, as you're aware, we'll have a vote at 11. So if we could, we'll get into the, we have your statements for the record. So if you could summarize them so we can get into the question rounds, that would be great. Thank you. Ms. Ms. Hogan. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Boxer, and distinguished members of the subcommittee, thank you for the invitation to testify today. I'm pleased to present USAID's plans for fiscal year 2017. Our request of approximately $970 million will promote the interests of the United States while also significantly improving the quality of life for those we help. We have identified five priorities to focus our assistance where we can have the greatest impact. Prosperity, good governance, and security in Central America, promoting a sustainable and equitable peace in Colombia, long-term development in Haiti, advancing democracy and human rights across the Americas, and addressing environmental threats to livelihoods. One of our highest priorities is Central America, particularly in the countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. We see prosperity, improved governance, and security, the objectives of our Central America strategy, as interdependent. We know that opening doors for citizens, especially youth at risk of gang recruitment, will bolster our efforts in security and lead to freer, more prosperous societies. That's why our prosperity programs include efforts to support small businesses and entrepreneurs, encourage private investment, train youth in job skills, and improve agricultural productivity. These efforts to grow prosperity are only sustainable in an environment where democratic values and institutions flourish, human rights are respected, and civil society and the media can play their rightful roles. To that end, our governance programs are aimed at reforming institutions to root out corruption, strengthening civil society's ability to hold governments accountable, fostering a culture of respect for human rights, especially for historically marginalized groups, and improving fiscal transparency. These are important programs, but ultimately, it will be difficult for our prosperity and governance efforts to take root in societies that are plagued by insecurity. Therefore, we're using tested approaches in the most violent-prone communities to create safe community spaces, provide job and life skills training, and build trust between police and residents. With sustained commitment on the part of the United States and host governments, we will help the Northern Triangle develop into a safer, more prosperous region for all those who live there. Such sustained commitment yields results, as we have seen with the notable strides made in Colombia. In 
2017, USAID is requesting $187 million to expand upon current programming to help the Colombian government establish a stronger presence in former conflict zones, provide post-conflict reconciliation and justice, promote inclusive rural economic growth, and sustainably manage the country's vast natural resources. These programs will build upon current successes, especially for marginalized populations. Along with Central America and Colombia, Haiti remains a high priority for USAID. Our FY17 request will continue our efforts to help Haiti grow into a stable and economically viable country. We remain focused on promoting economic growth, job creation, and agricultural advan advances, providing basic health care and education services, and improving the transparency of government institutions and their responsiveness to citizens. While much more remains to be done, we are committed to supporting the Haitian people as they build a more prosperous and secure future. Throughout the region, our democracy and human rights programs address fundamental issues, including anti-corruption, promotion of press freedoms and the rule of law, and support for civil society. USAID works to ensure that government institutions are open and accountable. They use public funds responsibly and effectively and deliver critical services to citizens. We're also committed to supporting human rights everywhere we work. Underpinning all of these efforts is support and protection for a strong and vibrant civil society that can hold governments accountable. Another challenge facing the region is the negative impact of extreme weather events. Our mitigation and adaptation efforts help reduce devastation to life, property, and economic activity. We're also speeding the development and deployment of advanced clean energy technologies and helping to create favorable legal and regulatory environments. We have one goal in mind with everything that we do, to empower countries to assume responsibility for their own development and grow beyond the need for international assistance. We use science, technology, innovation, and private sector partnerships to find new solutions and scale up what works. For every dollar we spent in the region in 2014, we mobilized five times that in private sector resources. We take our responsibility to the United States taxpayer seriously, and we're committed to accountability, transparency, and oversight of our programs. We use a full range of monitoring and evaluation tools to track our progress and ensure that our programs are meeting goals and delivering high-impact results. With sustained commitment from countries in the region to advance their own development goals and our government support, we are well-placed for success. Thank you to the committee for your attention, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Mr. Palmieri. Chairman Rubio, Ranking Member Boxer, Senator Kane, thank you for the opportunity to testify on the fiscal year 2017 foreign assistance request for the Western Hemisphere. And thank you for your ongoing support of our diplomatic and assistance efforts in the hemisphere. The administration's approach to the region improves security, strengthens the rule of law, promotes democracy and human rights, advances partnerships, and promotes prosperity and inclusive growth for all its citizens. U.S. assistance is a critical tool that supports these goals. In our request for Central America and Mexico, we seek to address the underlying conditions driving migration from Central America through Mexico and to the United States. The request also includes increases to support Colombia's implementation of an expected peace agreement marking the end of the hemisphere's longest running conflict. The request maintains support 
for key partnerships with Peru, Haiti, and the Caribbean. The FY 2017 Foreign Assistance Request for our strategy in Central America continues support for prosperity, governance, and security, particularly for Central America's Northern Triangle in, recogni in recognition of the acute challenges these countries face. U.S. assistance through the strategy complements the investments Northern Triangle governments are making through their own development plan, the Alliance for Prosperity. They plan to spend $2.6 billion this year on their own plan. Continued U.S. support will be vital to Colombia's success as it seeks to implement a peace accord. Our partnership with Mexico remains an important priority for the United States and includes a range of issues that benefit both countries, including trade and investment, energy and security. The Merida, the Merida Initiative continues to provide the framework for our bilateral security cooperation at both federal and state levels. Our request also includes essential democracy assistance for Cuba and Venezuela, where the United States will continue to provide assistance that advances universal human rights and supports vibrant civil societies. Promotions of democratic principles and human rights remains at the core of U.S. interests in Cuba. Our request for Haiti continues investments in infrastructure, agriculture, economic growth, basic education and health, expanded governance, democracy activities, and security. A sustained U.S. commitment is essential to build on the, great, on the past gains of U.S. efforts in Haiti and to build its capacity to respond to citizens' needs. Improving security and development in the Caribbean directly benefits U.S. interests. The Caribbean Basin Security Initiative complements Caribbean efforts to reduce crime and violence, strengthen the rule of law, and address the factors that put youth and marginalized communities at risk of insecurity. U.S. counter-narcotics assistance complements investments made by the government of Peru and maintains our strong partnership in eradication and alternative development to coca cultivation. I urge the U.S. Congress to fully fund this request for the Western Hemisphere as it advances our national security and wisely invests our resources where they can have the most significant impact. I look forward to your questions. And Senator Kane, I just wanted to point out there's a great group of students from Richmond, Virginia here today at the hearing. Can I ask, are they Maggie Walker students? Yes. Hey, congratulations on We the People. You guys are fantastic. Secretary. Two of my boys went to that high school, so. Secretary Milanowski. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator Rubio, um, Senator Boxer, Senator Kane. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I will say a few words about our global programs to support people who are struggling for uh, advances in democracy and human rights around the world. And I'll start by acknowledging that this is obviously not an easy time to be doing this kind of work. It is a time, as we can all see from the headlines, when authoritarian governments, beginning with big powers like Russia and China, are striking out with great ferocity against freedoms of expression, association, and the press. There is the horrible war in Syria and the terror of ISIL and the mass migrations of refugees and the fear that all of this insecurity creates even in democratic 
countries with all of the impact on our politics that we have seen. Now, all of that should disturb us. I don't think it should surprise us. After all, freedom has advanced in waves over the last uh, few decades. Um, it has been followed by the advances in the internet and the global civil society, which have allowed people in just about every closed society in the world to know exactly what they are missing and to connect with each other and with people around the world to build effective movements for social change. People often say to me that human rights is a soft issue. I think it is the hardest hard power issue there is because its advance is a threat to some of the most dangerous people in the world. If you're trying to steal an election or to stay in office for life or to profit from corruption, then of course you are going to be threatened by NGOs and by journalists who try to expose those abuses of power. Of course you are going to fight back and you're gonna fight hard and you're gonna fight dirty. And that's what we are facing in many parts of the world. But as I look around the world, I, I find that the good guys are still winning as many victories as they're losing, particularly when we're there to help them. Uh, just in the last year, look at the historic elections that took place in Burma, in Nigeria, uh, in Sri Lanka, even in Venezuela, where the people haven't won, but they were able to manifest their enormous desire for change through an election. So the lesson I take from that is that if we have patience and determination, if we stick with these efforts and with these programs, we are going to win more victories uh, than the defeats that we face. And that's where the funding that you provide my bureau, DRL, um, through our Human Rights and Democracy Fund comes in. It's not a lot of money. It's about $85 million this year. We like to think of it as our venture capital fund for freedom. We're using it to get news, knowledge, and even entertainment into North Korea, an effort that we know is changing minds and awakening expectations in the most closed society on Earth. We're using it to support the legal defense of activists and dissidents in multiple countries where they're being persecuted. We're using it to support former political prisoners in Burma so that they can contribute to building democracy there and to fight the religious hatred that threatens their democracy. We're using it to develop and deploy cutting edge technologies that break through China's great firewall and to protect activists in dozens of countries from cyber attacks and cyber intrusions. We're using it to help organizations defending freedom of expression in Latin America. One of our programs recently supported a campaign that saved Ecuador's number one press freedom watchdog. We're using it to keep civil society organizations alive in Syria where groups we funded have negotiated ceasefires, <coughs> documented the crimes of the Assad regime, and organized communities to stand up to ISIL and al-Nusra. We're using it to prevent atrocities, for example, setting up early warning systems in remote, remote areas of the Eastern Congo so that people there can call for help when they're threatened by armed groups and in Nigeria to protect people from Boko Haram. We're using it to help women who have escaped ISIL captivity in Northern Iraq. We're using it to support organizations that try to build trust between Muslim communities and the police in Eastern Kenya so that they can unite against Al-Shabaab. We're using it to get help to people who need it faster than I think any other agency in the US government. Our emergency grant programs can get small but sometimes life-saving amounts of money to activists and NGOs under threat in as little as 48 hours. We're using these programs right now 
to provide protection and assistance to some of the bloggers and others who have been threatened in Bangladesh, one of many examples. And to save the best for last, from a fiscal standpoint at least, let me say that we also use it to support the work of NGOs and journalists that expose corruption around the world. This work has contributed to almost $3 billion in confiscations and fines, including over a billion dollars in Justice Department seizures, which is a pretty good investment for your DRL funds, I would say. So I wanna thank you uh, for the very strong support that this committee and the Congress has shown our programs over the years, and I pledge to you that with continued support, we will continue to do work that I think not only does our country proud, but that makes us safer, more secure, stronger in the long run. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> Secretary Milanowski. My, my first question is on the issue of human rights and the President's visit last week to Saudi Arabia. There are in particular two cases, Raif Badawi and Walid Abu Akar. Do you know if any one of these cases were raised in those meetings, and what are we doing uh, to pressure? There was a bipartisan letter, a group of senators last week urging the President to make human rights a priority during his meeting with the King. Were these cases raised during that meeting? And if not, uh, what else are we doing with regarding to th these, two and, uh, these two people that are jailed unjustly? Um, these cases have been raised, uh, including at the very highest levels, more than once with the Saudi government. Um, and I know that the, uh, the president in his meeting with the king had an extensive conversation about uh, human rights uh, in Saudi Arabia. I think you may have seen some stories about um, how intensive that conversation was. Um, we will, uh, I can pledge to you, continue to raise those cases and others, uh, both privately with the Saudi government and publicly where appropriate, um, until people who are unjustly detained uh, for peaceful expression, uh, as these individuals are, are released. Recently, the administration made its countries a particular concern designations, and notably absent from the list was Pakistan. A recent example of religious intolerance was the horrific Easter attack in Lahore. What would have to happen, in your view, for Pakistan to be designated as a country of particular concern? I think there, there are a lot of tough calls um, when the Secretary um, makes uh, these decisions. I think the, um, the test is not simply whether there are significant abuses of religious freedom in a particular country, but whether we feel that there is a commitment within the government to try to do something about it. And it's an evaluation that the Secretary makes on a case-by-case -case basis. We added a country this year. We added Tajikistan, because after a lot of diplomatic efforts with the government, we were simply not getting um, a sufficient uh, or acceptable response from that government to, to our requests for action on certain issues. With respect to Pakistan, the Secretary made the judgment that the government is committed to trying to deal with this violence. He, the Secretary recently made his uh, recent, well, he made his genocide designation uh, what steps has the department taken to prioritize especially vulnerable communities like the ancient Christian or Yazidi communities which have found themselves in the crosshairs of ISIS? Well, um, it, this has been a burning priority for many of us since this conflict with uh, ISIL began. I was in northern Iraq about a month ago. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I visited uh, the um, main Yazidi uh, religious shrine in, in Lalish, just a few miles north of the front line uh, with ISIL. Um, we are um, 
As I mentioned in my testimony, we have a lot of programs that we're funding to provide direct support, not just humanitarian assistance, but also psychosocial support for people who have um, faced violence, escaped captivity on the part of ISIL. Uh, as you know, the first shots that we fired in this war to liberate um, territory in Iraq from ISIL were fired to protect the Yazidi people on Mount Sinjar when they were surrounded uh, by uh, the terrorists. And, and I think this is something that we need to think about uh, with particular focus in the next stage of the military campaign um, as it focuses more closely on Mosul and the Nineveh plain. I think many, many members of Congress rightly urged us to look at the genocide determination and to call what was happening to the Christians, to the Yazidis, to other minorities by its name. But using the terminology is the easy part. The important thing is that we find a way to liberate um, these historical homelands of these people in a way that not only defeats ISIL, not only drives away the terrorists, but that enables these communities to go home with dignity and with security. And frankly, that's going to take resources. And I think we're going to be working with you and, and reaching out to you to talk about what it's going to take to do this in the right way so those people can go home. Well, you say it takes resources. What additional budget resources are necessary to... I'm probably not the best person to ask what the, the total cost of, of, of the entire stabilization. It's going to require support for, in the short term, IDPs. Uh, for example, um, as Mosul is squeezed, um, there will almost certainly be hundreds of thousands of people fleeing that city. There are two million people in Mosul, as you know. Those people are going to need to be cared for somewhere by somebody. Um, it's going to require stabilization funds after the liberation uh, of that area for, for rebuilding, for, re for restoring institutions of justice. It's going to require training and support for local security forces, including, I would say, some of the local security forces that communities, including the Christian communities, have been uh, forming in that area. We are already beginning to work with those, uh, with those folks. But I think if you look at the various appeals, including the UN appeal just for the humanitarian support, you'll find that a lot more is needed. Secretary Palmieri, um, last year there were over 8,600 documented political arrests in Cuba. Cuba remains the only country in the Americas to be classified as not free by Freedom House, and groups such as Human Rights Watch provide details on the myriad of ways that basic rights and liberties are still not respected in Cuba. In light of all of this, why then would the administration request a reduction from the 20 million that's provided annually in recent years in funding to democracy assistance for the Cuban people? Thank you for the question, Senator. Uh, the, thank you for the question, Senator. The uh, uh, FY17 request uh, seeks to establish a sustainable level of dem democracy support uh, in Cuba. Um, uh, we believe the human rights situation there uh, merits uh, continued uh, attention, and uh, our assistance is designed uh, to work with uh, civil society, independent civil society act, uh, promote democratic values, uh, human rights, and advance fundamental freedoms. Uh, the level of funding is one that we believe uh, we can execute on the ground there. So you're saying that we don't think we can spend 20 million, we, can, we can't find programs to fund with the 20 million, so that's why you're asking for less? Uh, it's very unusual for a government agency to ask for less. That's why I'm bringing up this point. Why would we ask for less? We believe that's the, 
the sustainable level of programming uh, that we can carry out uh, inside Cuba. But what does that mean, sustainable? The amount you can get funded in the future or sustainable, like that's as much as you can handle? Uh, it's a combination of uh, the uh, amount of money that we believe uh, can be absorbed inside Cuba at this time. That was not the feeling two years ago? Is that a change in position? Because a couple of years ago, the funding was at 20 million. So what happened with the additional money that was appropriated in those past years? I'll, I'll have to get back to you on what happened to the previous funding, sir. Well, my point is, you're saying that you don't believe the island can sustain $20 million of spending on democracy programs. There's not enough programs to fund, or that we, we can sustain $20 million. So that's why you're asking for less. But in past years, there's been more money. Are you saying that money wasn't spent? Uh, sir, if, I, if you're spending less this year than you were in the past, something that you funded in the past is not getting funded now. Isn't that correct? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. I, I, I can, yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, we have spent. Uh, slightly more than, than $15 million in the past. I mean, I think what's, what, what we face every time we make these requests, to, to be honest, is overall, as you well know, a diminishing pool of resources to do almost everything that we want to do around the world. Um, the way I look at this, Senator Rubio, um, I obviously, as the head of the Democracy and Human Rights Bureau, I, I always welcome as much spending as, uh, as we can do in any country in the world that needs it. I've got, as I mentioned, about $85 million globally for every single country, every single continent in the world to spend on democracy and human rights programs. And I could probably spend more in every single country where we're doing this kind of work. Cuba, at this point, um, I think next to Iraq is the country that receives the most human rights and democracy support of any country in the world. And it merits it, given the challenges, given the importance uh, that this issue has to the United States. Um, but I, you know, I sometimes look at it and say, gosh, I'd love to have more. Sometimes I look at it and say, you know, I'd rather have more than $200,000 for a country in Africa or a country in Asia where that's all we've got to deal with these issues. So those are some of the choices, I think. So this is we, basically part of reallocation of resources to be spent somewhere else? It is. Within a limited budget. I think we have a very limited budget. I would say far too limited for democracy and governance around the world. You know the challenges that we've had overall in trying to maintain an adequate level of spending for democracy and governance in a lot of places that we all care about greatly. Cuba is one of them. Um, so it's certainly not a reallocation away from supporting democracy and human rights, but we have hard choices to make within the limited amount of money that we have for that. Obviously, I'd love us to be able to do more in a lot of places. Senator Boxer. Well, I would like you to be able to do more. I watched you do it in the nonprofit sector, and I think you could do it here as well. I want to get back to the Zika virus, because I think this is an absolute threat to this country. So, Ms. Hogan, I'm going to direct this question to you. Um, I, there's no doubt the Zika virus is a public health emergency. It's infected thousands of people in the Western Hemisphere, including over 300 Americans. It causes severe birth defects in newborns, including brain damage and blindness. In adults, it's linked to Guillain-Barr syndrome, Barre syndrome, which can cause paralysis. In the last few months, the World Health Organization described the Zika threat as, quote, one of alarming proportions. 
And earlier this month, an official from the Center for Disease Control described the virus as, quote, scarier than we originally thought, unquote. Um, we also have learned that Zika is sexually transmitted. Now, in our country, the most endangered Americans are those who live in the Gulf states. It is clear that these types of ep uh, epidemics know no boundaries. Um, so we have to respond quickly. In February, the president requested a $1.9 billion emergency supplemental for Zika. A portion of this request would go to USAID to help fight the spread of the virus within the Western Hemisphere. Unfortunately, and sadly, and inexplicably, Congress has not provided the administration with the funding it needs to respond to this outbreak. And those who oppose it are gonna be held accountable. It's as simple as that. Time makes a big difference in these kind of epidemics. The longer we wait, the more people get infected, the more lives are painfully altered forever. We have seen it. We, it's coming as sure as I'm looking at you. So I'm asking you, with your limited funds, what efforts is USAID already undertaking to combat the spread of the Zika virus in the Western Hemisphere? I'm told by some of my Republican friends, some of whom support this, a lot of whom don't, Take the money from Ebola will swell, you know. That's a whole other problem, and uh, that's not the answer. So I want to know what you're doing with your limited funds, and do you agree we have a great need for the funds the president asked for? Thank you for that question, and we share your deep concern about the potential impact of Zika in the region, including in the United States. Uh, as you know, in addition to the $1.8 billion supplemental that the President has requested, he's also sent forward a CN to repurpose $295 million from our Ebola account to deal with immediate needs. Uh, thus far, USAID has conducted assessments around the region particularly in those countries where health systems are weak, and we have developed a strategy which we are ready to launch. Um, we, our strategy would include social uh, behavior change, communications, vector control, uh, investing in new diagnostic techniques, investing in research and development. Can we, di can we diagnose it? Do we, can we, is it easy to find out if someone's carrying the virus? CDC is the expert in this area, but I know that they can diagnose it. Okay. To do it more rapidly and mm -hmm. more inexpensively is what we're, we're hoping to bring about through a grand challenge that USAID just issued last week to the private sector for $30 million to invest in innovative technologies and innovative um, approaches to do the kinds of things that I just mentioned in terms of diagnostics, vector okay. control. Okay, so to sum it up, you're doing everything you can with limited resources, but it's a race against time. And, you know, Mr. Chairman, from my understanding, we have so much, and I know you're supporting taking action on this. I'm so grateful to you. We don't even know how long the virus stays in your system, and since it's sexually transmitted, you know, couples planning to have children, they, they, they better know the situation, whether the the man is infected and can pass it on. It's very problematical. I raise it here because it's one of those unusual situations where there is a direct impact for Americans that's going on in another part of the world. We've got to connect the dots. This isn't some foreign policy matter. This is, this is a health emergency, and I'll be continuing to speak about it. Um, 
Mr. Malinowski, over the last 14 years, Afghan women have made progress in education, health, and political representation. I've been engaged every time I can in meeting with the women. And when, while President Ghani is a strong partner on women's issues, it's clear that women continue to face grave barriers, especially in regard to their legal rights. Last year, for instance, a mob brutally killed a woman falsely accused of burning the Quran. This horrific murder happened in central Kabul in broad daylight in the presence of security officials. Disturbingly, the Afghan Supreme Court recently vacated the death sentences of four men charged with this murder and reduced the sentences of nine others. This is but one example of ways in which Afghanistan's legal system continues to fail Afghan women. How will the U.S. continue to work with Afghanistan to bolster the legal rights of Afghan women? Well, thank you for that question. I'm, I'm sure I won't do justice to everything, to every aspect of it or everything that, that we're doing. With respect to the Afghan judiciary, one of the uh, steps that President Ghani uh, intended to take was to appoint the first woman or women to the Afghan Supreme Court. When I saw him last, I urged him to, to do that. He said that he was committed to it. He has been unsuccessful. The, his appointments there have been, uh, have been blocked. Well, wait a minute. Where are they learning how to block appointments to the Supreme Court? Uh, their system, I think, is... I'm only kidding. That yeah. was oh, a, sorry. a bad joke. <laughs> I was heading towards the same joke, anyway. Okay, never mind. Um, so, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm resisting all kinds of ways of, yeah. Um, Resist. At a lower level, um, but at a very important level, uh, we've done a lot of work with local... Uh, justice institutions uh, in Afghanistan through training and other assistance programs to help them implement the new violence against women law, which has been one important advance uh, in that country. We have a program out of my bureau uh, which supports sending uh, talented young Afghan women uh, to uh, a university uh, in uh, a university for women in Bangladesh. We've established a really interesting and important program there. And the women who graduate from that program often then go back to Afghanistan and enter government, enter the justice system. Um, so at a, you know, at a grassroots level, just encouraging more and more women to take up positions um, in the justice system has been an important priority for our programming. Senator Gardner. Thank you to all the witnesses for your time and testimony today. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for holding this hearing. Uh, just a, a couple questions for you, Mr. Malinowski. I wanted to start with North Korea, if I could. The legislation that the Senate and House passed, signed by the President just a few uh, a couple months ago, uh, requires a designation of human rights violators in North Korea, an investigation of those human rights violators. Uh, out of curiosity, how are those investigations uh, going, and do you have any intention of naming people under the legislation passed by Congress? And if so, who and when? Uh, the, we are uh, working very hard on identifying people. I have often spoken publicly about this. I think one of the most important things that we can do for human rights in North Korea is to send a message inside the system there uh, to the, to the mid-level people, to the camp commanders, to the people in the public security ministries who are responsible for the worst abuses that, guess what, we know who you are. We know your names. And someday when there's change on the Korean Peninsula, you're going to be on a list that you don't want to be on if you're associated with those abuses. 
Figuring out who those people are is not mm -hmm. always easy for reasons that I'm sure you'll understand. We are working uh, with our partners, including with uh, the, the South Koreans, to try to, uh, to figure this out. We've made some progress. Yes, we do intend um, to use the sanctions authority. In fact, uh, as you know, the president's executive order before the legislation passed created a human rights sanctions authority for the same uh, purpose. I can't tell you who, because we're not there yet. Um, the when, hopefully as soon as possible. Will you be looking at the highest uh, levels of government, though, for these sanctions? We, we, we will be. Um, we can look at individuals. We can also look at ministries. I'll tell you my preference in terms of effectiveness, because I don't want to just you know, say Kim Jong-un is a bad guy. That's, we all know that. Mm -hmm. My preference would be to try to identify some of the people who are less well-known in order to send that message that actually we do know who they are and there may be some consequence in the future mm -hmm. if they are associated, for example, with executions in the prison camp system and, and the rest. We did provide additional authorities under the legislation in order Correct. to communicate with the North Korean people to find ways to build uh, cheap and efficient and effective communication channels in order to uh, get the message out about the atrocities of the Kim Jong-un regime. And hopefully those authorities, Senator Rubio, Chairman Rubio was a critical part of that. Uh, will be utilized and helpful in getting the word out about the acts that these people are carrying out. Absolutely, and I'm grateful for that. We um, already have some very interesting and creative programming um, from old-fashioned methodology like radio broadcasting to newer ways of getting uh, information to people in, in the North. There are uh, about three million cell phone contracts, amazingly, uh, in North Korea right now. So people are communicating uh, with each other and also with people outside the country in surprising ways. And um, there are a lot of folks working on delivering content that will raise awareness, that will bring information to people in North Korea about simple things like what life is like outside of the country. We fund some of that out of my bureau and I think there's room for a lot more. China in the past has had a policy of returning North Korea defectors to the regime. Are, are you in conversation with China about changing that policy? Is China still intending to change that policy? And how is that dialogue uh, taking place? Uh, we've raised this many times uh, with the Chinese government, as have some other countries uh, in the region. It's been a difficult conversation. I would note that there are some cases recently uh, in which China has allowed people to move on. Um, who uh, have sought asylum. I think there were some North Korean uh, workers uh, in Beijing uh, recently who um, managed to get themselves uh, to South uh, Korea without objections from the Chinese government. So we'll have to see, but it's an important issue and one we continue to raise. Thank you, Mr. Malinowski. And a couple more questions. Uh, the week, according to, to news reports, the week after uh, President Obama visited, uh, well, I'll give you the quote from the news reports, uh, the week after U.S. President Barack Obama's visit, things in Cuba have returned to normal. More than 150 activists were arrested on Saturday in demonstrations demanding the release of political prisoners. Uh, is that an accurate assessment? Uh, how many political prisoners are there today in Cuba that we are aware of, and has there been an increase or a decrease in the number of um, these arrests and jailed since our policy changed toward Cuba? Uh, the big distinction here is between long-term political prisoners, most of whom um, have uh, been released, and the short-term harassment, uh, often violence, uh, that is uh, inflicted on people who try to hold meetings, organize rallies, um, discussions 
to engage in the politics of the island. That has absolutely not let up. Um, I think there were a couple of thousand of those short-term detentions in the first uh, three months uh, of uh, this year. Uh, and I think it, it reflects both the highly repressive tendencies of this government, which we know uh, extremely well, but also I think their nervousness uh, about the, the changes that are taking place uh, in our relationship um, and the hemisphere. Uh, I, I think um, it was very interesting to see the reaction of the Cuban government to President Obama's visit uh, after the fact. Fidel Castro basically um, left his bed to uh, deliver a speech uh, denouncing uh, President Obama. He said, we don't need any gifts from the empire. Uh, President Obama's syrupy words about brotherhood and shared history were enough to give Cubans a heart attack, he said. Um, Raul Castro uh, made similar statements. You know, it seems like the only argument these guys have had for the last few years is the myth of American hostility towards Cuba, and we have completely destroyed that myth in the eyes of the Cuban people, and they've got nothing else, and I think they're extremely nervous and insecure as a result of that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator King. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and if I, if I could, I'll just introduce you to these students who are here. Maggie L. Walker High School in Richmond is a, a school for governmental and international studies. Um, it's in the neighborhood where I live. It was a vacant and abandoned building when I got elected to the city council in 1994. And over the course of about seven years, we worked with governments in the region to build it um, into this high school that is now commonly ranked as one of the 25 best public high schools in the United States. And these students are here as part of a uh, constitutional competition that they've been participating in. And I'm really happy to have them here. And with the school's focus on government and international studies, this is a good hearing to be at. Um, I had the opportunity last week to ask some questions of both Ms. Hogan and Mr. Palmieri with respect to the Northern Triangle, and I'm going to actually focus more of my questions to uh, Secretary Malinowski today on human rights issues. Um, yesterday I had a wonderful meeting with uh, Senators Baldwin and Senator Coons with an um, inspirational city councilwoman in Istanbul, Sidef Kakmak, who is here. Um, she founded the Istanbul Pride Parade in 2003 and there were 30 marchers. By 2014, there were over 80,000 marchers, and last year, the Turkish government used water cannons to shut the march down and disperse everyone after it had grown so large. Uh, she was here visiting us to talk about ways in which the United States could be helpful, and when Senator Coons asked her, tell us how we can help human rights in Turkey, uh, this was her answer, and I wanted all of you to hear this uh, because it's about your colleague. She said, the help that we have had that has enabled us to do what we've done has been the United States. The support of the U.S. Ambassador, the support of the U.S. Consul in Istanbul has enabled uh, the LGBT community in Turkey to uh, not avoid persecution and hostility, as my story about the Pride Parade being dispersed suggests, but they've enabled us to uh, finally at least come out of the shadows to some degree and organize. And she really said that there had been no greater friend. So when we asked for what we could do to help, she said the, the main thing you can do to help is just thank our diplomats and folks with the State Department who have been our allies. Talk to me a little bit about the work that you're doing in your bureau 
with respect to LGBT rights around the world. Because whether it's in Turkey or Russia or Africa or other countries, we see serious, serious challenges. Please uh, tell a little bit about how we factor that into our diplomacy. Of course. Well, first of all, um, it's a very heartening story that you just told, and I will pass that on Please. personally to Ambassador Bass, who's one of our best ambassadors on so many different um, scores, and, and, and I know that he has been particularly um, principled in reaching out to the LGBT community and to the broader activist community uh, in Turkey, which is facing a lot of challenges right now. Um, I would say, first of all, um, it begins with um, recognition of the legitimacy and dignity of people around the world who are working for the human rights of LGBT people um, and simply asserting their own rights to live in, uh, in safety and, and in dignity and simply reaching out, meeting with these folks, as you mentioned, in Turkey is an important part of it. I try to do it on all my trips. Other senior US officials do as well. We're seen doing it. it that makes a difference. Um, we provide material support to people who are on the front lines of the struggle. We have in our little DRL budget something called the Global Equality Fund, which we've now gotten other governments to contribute mm -hmm. to as well. It's one of those emergency funds that I mentioned in my opening statement and that we can, we can deliver $3,000 in 48 hours to someone who needs help um, for security, for travel, uh, for basic support for an NGO that's doing good work, sometimes for legal support. There have been um, successful legal challenges in various countries around the world to highly restrictive, repressive, um, anti-gay laws that we have provided some support to. Um, and, um, and then just at a rhetorical level, and we're very, very careful in our public statements not to suggest that this is about carving out special rights for special kinds of people. What we're talking about is simply basic human rights that everybody in the world enjoys, whether they're straight or LGBT. No one should be discriminated against. No one should be subject to violence. No one should be persecuted because of who they are. And I think that message increasingly resonates in countries even where there is nervousness about um, the advance uh, of, of this issue. We met uh, Sedaf Kakmak, a number of us, in Istanbul in early January. We were with her uh, right in the heart of the city near the Blue Mosque about two days before the bombing there that occurred in early January. Very wonderful advocate. And she definitely connects the feelings of government persecution of the LGBT community to the worries that other religious minorities or, or political opponents are feeling in Turkey. This isn't a hearing about Turkey. I, I would like to delve into that further in another moment. Let me switch to another area within your bailiwick, and that is press freedom. Again, around the world, um, we're seeing uh, Turkey is a good example. Russia is a good example. Uh, Honduras, sadly, I lived in Honduras, a, a journalist at Radio Progreso, which is a Jesuit one radio station in El Progreso, Honduras, where I worked with the Jesuit community there 35 years ago. Carlos Mejia Orellana was killed two years ago, and a number of other journalists have been killed as well. I think the chair alluded to some freedom of press questions in his opening comments. This is so fundamental. And again, if you see a government cracking down on a free press, you can pretty much bet they're going to be cracking down on political op opponents. They're going to be trying to engage in other authoritarian 
activity. As much as we in politics sometimes rankle under a free press that is, you know, free and robust and, and challenging, we sure wouldn't trade it for anything else. Tell us how the State Department, through your bureau, tries to advance the notion of protecting freedom of the press around the world. First of all, when a government cracks down on free press, we speak out about it and um, we, we talk to them about it in, in our high-level diplomatic engagements. We've done it with Turkey. We've done it with, uh, with Egypt, where we have worked really, really hard to get journalists uh, out of prison. Uh, we've done it uh, in, uh, in China. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes uh, we're, we're less so. Look, journalists are persecuted because they're doing effective, hard-hitting work. Uh, and I think particularly at a time when the issue of anti-corruption is coming to the fore in many countries around the world, uh, it's making a lot of governments uh, that are corrupt nervous about uh, the work of a free press that is uncovering their secrets. And uh, oftentimes you will find that we are supporting that kind of work, uh, not just rhetorically, because we have an interest in accountable good governance and without a free press, we're not gonna, we're not gonna get one. Um, more generally, we also have programs that are specifically designed to help train journalists in difficult environments to stay safe. Um, programs in digital safety, physical safety, um, that, that uh, you know, obviously do not provide 100% protection, um, but that um, but I think are very helpful uh, to journalists who are facing very real danger in the work that they do. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks, just, Mr. Chair. Just a quick question. You asked about the LGBT community in Istanbul. Is that criminalized under Turkish law? Um, you said talk about government persecution. Under what form? I will. I will have to. I will have to get back to you. I'm not. I don't know if it's one of the countries where it's criminalized, but I will get back to you on that. Okay. Senator Cardin. Oh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank all of our witnesses for their extraordinary work that they do every day on behalf of, uh, of human rights. Mr. Mr. Molinowski, I want to ask you a couple questions, if I might. First, the Russia media has been very actively engaged to try to rewrite history as to what happened in Sergei Magnitsky and his tragic uh, arrest, torture, and death. Uh, the United States, uh, the administration has used um, its inherent authority to grant certain types of sanctions against those who perpetrated uh, those crimes in Russia, and has also used the authority under the Magnitsky law that was passed. Can you just comment as to the uh, basis for imposing those sanctions uh, as it relates to the allegations that have been made by the Russian press? Well, one thing I've learned about our sanctions programs uh, in this job is uh, how high the bar is for our lawyers, our investigators, the folks who determine whether a particular individual meets the criteria that Congress has laid out uh, for application of a particular sanction. And I can tell you in the Magnitsky case, we rely on multiple sources uh, of information in making these determinations. It's reviewed by many people in the United States government who have to be confident that the information is credible before we put somebody's name on that list. The Justice Department is involved, the Treasury Department is involved, in addition 
to the State Department, and we are very, very confident that the people who are on that list deserve to be on that list based on hard evidence. I, I thank you for that. There's been several people who have been sanctioned as a result of it, and, and there's been congressional involvement working with the administration on this issue. Um, and uh, it, 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 it's clear that with the information that we have received, the type of conduct that they uh, perpetrated in Russia uh, to a person who was trying to bring to the attention of the authorities a corrupt situation, in fact, became a victim, uh, arrested, tortured, and, and he lost his life. I thank you for uh, clarifying that point. I, I want to uh, move on to a tragic situation in Azerbaijan. We're seeing an increase in the number of political prisoners in that country and their oppression against um, those who uh, differ with the government. Uh, one of those cases, Akadja Ismailova, a political prisoner and Radio Free Europe Radio Liberty reporter, is currently serving a seven and a half year sentence in Azerbaijan on charges many human rights organizations regard as politically motivated. Uh, she has been a tireless reporter on corruption in the country and is widely believed that she was targeted for her work. Could you just um, comment as to what diplomatic tools we have available in order to raise this issue? Well, I would say first of all that we have called and will continue to call for the release of Khadija uh, Ismailova. We're very well, well aware of, uh, of her case. In the last several weeks, we have uh, engaged very intensively with the government of Azerbaijan on human rights issues. Um, it has, I think, contributed to uh, actions by the government of Azerbaijan to release a number of people who we consider to be political uh, prisoners, um, including uh, Inta Gamaliev, um, uh, an internationally uh, recognized uh, human rights uh, lawyer, Rasul Jafarov, uh, Anar Mamadli, uh, who is the chairman of their election monitoring and democratic studies center. Um, we've seen um, some, some, I think, very positive steps uh, by the government of Azerbaijan in response uh, to, to our engagement. But we would certainly agree with you that the good news that we've seen is not uh, yet enough. There are still others in detention who should not be, including Khadija, Khadija Ismailova. Um, and we very strongly believe that releasing the remaining political prisoners and more broadly expanding freedom of expression um, and freedom of the press in Azerbaijan would be good for that country's future and good for our relationship with Azerbaijan. And lastly, let me just raise the, the tragic death that we saw in Bangladesh just a few days ago of a U.S. Uh, aid employee, uh, Zolhaz Mana. Uh, who founded the Bangladesh First LGBT magazine. Uh, that murder is still being investigated from the point of view of responsibility. We know that an ISIL-related group claimed responsibility, but this is just outrageous. And I would hope that the administration will keep a bright a spotlight on this tragic death uh, and make sure that we have um, full accountability as to who are responsible and that we um, uh, hold the government to doing everything possible, not only to hold the perpetrators responsible, but to protect 
to civil society. Civil society in Bangladesh is challenged, uh, and uh, clearly uh, this murder will have an impact on that country. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely horrific. We're outraged by it. Um, it's um, the latest in a series of killings, as you mentioned. This one cuts particularly close. We will do everything we can to encourage the government of Bangladesh to investigate this and bring the perpetrators to justice. We will support them in doing so. And as I mentioned um, uh, in my opening remarks, uh, we also can use and are using some of our emergency assistance programs to provide uh, support in getting people who are threatened, still threatened in Bangladesh, to safety if they want to avail themselves of that kind of support. Thank you. I thank all the panelists for their, their commitment to these issues. Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, Ms. Hogan, um, you have a fentanyl epidemic in the United States, and our sources now say that it's very clear that China and Mexico are the two principal means by which fentanyl is coming into the United States. Um, the number of opioid deaths in our country has escalated dramatically with the single largest new addition to that um, uh, plague being fentanyl as a killer in our country. Um, what is our government saying to Mexico about the um, importation of, uh, of fentanyl? Uh, it, it comes up right from Mexico and it winds up in Lawrence, Massachusetts, um, where people die, but that's the story for most of our country. What is it that we are telling the Mexicans about this importation of fentanyl? Thank you for the question. Actually, it's the State Department that has the lead on that dialogue, so I would ask my okay. colleague from State Department to respond. Mr. Palmieri. Yeah, Senator, thank you. Uh, we are engaged in a broad-based uh, effort with Mexico to improve counter-narcotics interdiction uh, and, and to improve their ability to eradicate uh, poppy uh, cultivation inside Mexico, as well as strengthen our, our border and law enforcement cooperation to, pre to prevent those kinds of drugs from leaving Mexico. Well, what about, what, what's the, what, what is, are, are you talking specifically about fentanyl? Fentanyl is the new addition. It's like a chemical concoction uh, that is put together. What are you saying about fentanyl specifically to the Mexicans? It's a killer. Well, we have a, a broad, broad-based uh, conversation with Mexico on counter-narcotics. Our law enforcement agencies are engaged with Mexico across the full range of uh, drug trafficking that uh, emanates from Mexico into the United States. And I'm No, I'm asking, are you having specific conversations about fentanyl with them? It's much more deadly than heroin or anything that uh, has ever been seen before. What are you saying to them about this one specific new addition to the opioid death spiral that uh, too many families in America have now fallen. We, we are pressing the Mexican government to do all it can to prevent uh, uh, illegal narcotics from entering the United States and to work collaboratively with uh, our law enforcement agencies. And fentanyl is definitely one of those uh, substances that we are focused on, sir. Well, I, I would just urge you as strongly as I can to uh, elevate fentanyl to the top priority which you have. 
it has the potential to kill tens of thousands, tens of thousands of Americans over the next several years. And the route in is through Mexico. So this is something that uh, I just urge you to elevate uh, to the level of, uh, of intense uh, dialogue between our two countries so that they know that we mean business uh, on that issue. Uh, it is of critical concern, not just in urban America, but in every city and town in our country. Fentanyl is coming. Fentanyl is the new drug that is killing people, uh, and we've got to stop it. And the Mexicans must be our aggressive partner uh, in this. Um, on, on human rights in uh, Mexico, um, the, uh, the security forces have been implicated in repeated serious human rights violations, including extrajudicial killings, enforced disappearances and torture, and that the government has made little progress investigating or prosecuting those responsible for abuses. What is happening in Mexico defies belief. In September of 2014, 43 students disappeared in Mexico. That was nearly two years ago. At the time, I wrote a letter urging the Secretary of State to do everything possible to support the Mexican government by making additional investigative and forensic resources available. My letter also urged assistance to the Mexican government in its efforts to bring all those responsible to justice and to ensure positive post-mortem identifications that allow families to begin their grieving and healing process. This, the Mexican government has not done. In 2015, an interdisciplinary group of experts appointed by the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights went to Mexico to investigate the case and work for about a year to uncover the truth. But then the Mexican government refused to extend their mandate, uh, prematurely ending their work. This past weekend, they released their final report and found serious abuses and inconsistencies in the Mexican government's investigation. The report throws the government's version of events into serious question and suggests that the government did not seek to discover the extent of official culpability for these crimes. Last Friday, the New York Times reported that the group of experts has enjoyed carefully orchestrated attacks in the Mexican news media, a refusal by the government to turn over documents or grant interviews with essential figures, and even a retaliatory criminal investigation into one of the officials who appointed them. What is our government doing to persuade the Mexican government to allow the group of experts to continue its investigation? And what will we do now in response to their report? Mr. Mellon. I'm going to start and I can jump in. Senator. Uh Senator, uh, we did take note of the uh, April 24th uh, uh, report of the uh, uh, independent experts from the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Uh, we commend the Commission's work and uh, we do urge Mexico to consider the reports and respond to the report's recommendations, specifically uh, to uh, uh, provide assistance to the families uh, and the victims uh, to bring uh, the perpetrators to justice and uh, to evaluate uh, the uh, suggested uh, uh, actions 
to address the forced disappearances associated with that incident. Well, what additional actions can we take in order to impress upon the Mexican government how serious we are about this issue? Well, we, we do have an ongoing human rights dialogue with the uh, Mexican government. This is a topic that has been raised at many different levels and will continue to be raised directly with the government, sir. Yeah, I think that we've got obviously a huge uh, problem here. Uh, 27,000 Mexicans have disappeared over the last uh, 10 years that the government has done little to investigate. Uh, and I think that this is just an escalating problem inside of their country, and I think it's up to the United States, since they are our partner on so many other issues, uh, to use every bit of leverage we have to let them know that we are dead serious about this issue, and it just cannot be allowed to continue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. We, I know there's a vote call, so we're going to wrap up. I just have one more question, um, Mr. Palmieri, I wanted to ask you. You know, the, there's been a significant uptick in the number of Cuban migrants. Just for example, from October of last year through February, so just five-month period, 18,500 Cubans arrived at the Texas Laredo field office. So it, we're also getting kind of similar reports from the Coast Guard. They've attempt, they say since October of last year, 2,700 Cubans have attempted to enter the U.S. by sea. So this, but what's more concerning is the number of people, we talked about this briefly last week at another hearing, coming in, I think, through Ecuador and Panama and Costa Rica, and if you read the press report, some of these governments, their body language or attitude is, we're going to put them on a plane and fly them as close as possible to the U.S. border so they can cross in. In essence, we don't want this problem. This is a major developing issue here, and it, much of this upsurge has occurred since the deal. What is driving this new migration? And what is driving this new migration? What is our position towards those countries that are talking about moving these people? I mean, their attitude is our job is to kind of facilitate them, get them through so they can get to the U.S., which is where they want to go. Second, are we confronting that attitude that they have? And third, what is the best way to stop this? Yeah. Um, thank you for that question, Senator. The, the engagement with the countries in the region focuses on encouraging them uh, to ensure safe, legal, and orderly migration. Much of this migration is undocumented and irregular as it passes through uh, the Central America region. Uh, there is no question that uh, earlier this year, uh, Costa Rica and Panama worked with the government of, Me of Mexico and did airlift uh, almost uh, 8,000 uh, Cuban migrants from both countries uh, to the northern part of Mexico where they crossed uh, into the United States. Uh, Costa Rica took the step at that time of making clear that after that backlog was, uh, was addressed, that they were going to be more aggressive in enforcing their immigration laws and returning people to their uh, last point of origin. We now see an additional uh, backlog of, uh, of these migrants in uh, in Panama, and there is now, uh, at least as reported in the press, talk of a, another possible airlift between Panama and Mexico. We continue to urge the countries to enforce their migration laws, to strengthen their border controls, and to uh, address undocumented and irregular uh, migration by returning people to their last point of origin. Uh, we think that is the best way uh, to Well, have we pronounced ourselves flow. against these airlifts? I mean, you're, have, have we pronounced ourselves against these airlifts, whether it's the one that Costa Rica did or the one Panama is not doing? Because the minute the word gets out that if you can get into this country, they're going to put you on a plane and fly you close to the U.S. border so you can get in, you're encouraging more people to do this. So have we said to them, do not airlift people? I mean, we have significant 
potential leverage with these countries. We, we have worked with all three countries to ensure that they are going to strengthen their border controls and put in place uh, better mechanisms to prevent uh, this undocumented and irregular right, That's migration. future, but what about the current backlog? Have we told them do not airlift these people? Um, we have encouraged the countries in the region themselves to figure out the best solution uh, uh, to uh, this uh, surge of uh, migration. And we believe the best solution is um, stronger enforcement of their own uh, immigration but law. But we haven't told them not to do the airlift. Uh, we have not told them not to do the airlift, sir. Okay. What is driving this? I mean, this Cuba is repressive. They've been repressive for 60 years. What's the difference now? Is it the fear that the Cuban Adjustment Act is going to go away that's driving people to try to get in here before it goes away? Um, we have no plans to change the uh, Cuban uh, Adjustment Act at this time, uh, Senator. Uh, there continues to be a large migration flow out of Cuba. It reflects uh, the difficult economic and uh, human rights conditions in the country. But, but, and I, under, I understand that the administration has no plans to advocate for a change in the Cuban Adjustment Act, which was an act of Congress, but my question is, is there a fear? What I, what I hear is that people in Cuba think the Cuban Adjustment Act might go away now that the situation's been normalized, so they're trying to get into the U.S. before that happens. Is, I, I, I don't know uh, I, and can't comment directly on the individual motivations of uh, uh, these Cuban migrants, but I, I do, I can make clear that the administration is uh, not entertaining any idea of uh, a, a change to the uh, Cuban Adjustment Act. And so that shouldn't be a factor uh, in their decision calculus. Okay. All right. Uh, well, I want to thank all of you for being here today. I appreciate you participating in this. And I think it was informative. And I'm, and I'm uh, pleased as well that we have so many members attend and ask great questions. Again, we always thank you uh, for the work that you all do on behalf of our country. And, uh, with that, I just wanted to end by noting that the record will remain open until the close of business on Thursday, April 28th. And with that, the hearing is adjourned.